0: Exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we begin to study God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. Your word is alive and powerful. It has value in our lives day into day out in ways that we hardly ever uh, ever explore. Uh, Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we pray that we might have a desire and a hunger for Your Word, that we might not go a day without studying Your Word and reflecting upon it, memorizing Scripture, studying it, internalizing it, that uh, on the basis of Your Word and the God, the Holy Spirit, that we might grow and mature as believers. Father, we live in challenging times. We live in chaotic times. We live in times where we see dark clouds on the horizon. And the only thing that will get us through this is your word. And so, Father, we pray that we might not take this time lightly, but recognize that it is through your word that God has determined that we will grow and mature as we learn to think your thoughts after you, as we learn to think as Christ thought, as we learn to think biblically and not like those around us. So, Father, we pray that you would uh, enlighten us to the significance of your word today as we study it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this morning we're going to continue our study in Ephesians chapter 4, and the verse we began last time is Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 30. And so what we're looking at today is this next section of the verse which talks about the fact that we are sealed, every single believer is sealed by means of God the Holy Spirit, and that is vital for understanding our eternal security. I get questions quite frequently from people who struggle to think that they are secure in their salvation. They worry about many things. well, what about my sins? What about my failures? And we have to recognize that we are saved by god 's grace, not by our works, not by any works, any works that we do before we 're saved or after we 're saved. If we do nothing to earn our salvation, we can do nothing to lose our salvation. that salvation is a free gift and it 's totally based upon what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and that is just such a comforting truth, but there are other aspects to our salvation. The the salvation that God has given us is not as simple as saying, oh, I've got everlasting life. I've got eternal life. When I die, I'll go to heaven and and, uh, I won't go to the lake of fire where there's punishment. But but our salvation is multifaceted. There is so much to it. And it's also true that our spiritual death was multifaceted and there was a lot to that and God solved all the problems that come into our life because of our, of the fact that we are spir- spiritually dead. And so one of the facets of our salvation that we are given at the instant of our salvation is that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that is a down payment, this passage says and others related to it, on our future redemption and realization of our full salvation. So that sealing by the Spirit is something that is distinctive to this church age. They didn't have it in the Old Testament before Noah. They didn't have it after the calling of Abraham. No Old Testament saint was sealed by the Spirit. Uh, Nobody in the um, Tribulation will be sealed by the Spirit. There will be a special sealing, but it's different on the 144,000 Jews that are saved. Uh, it's a different purpose for that sealing, and it's not described as being sealed by the Spirit. And it's never mentioned as relating to anybody during the millennial kingdom. It is part of that series of blessings that Paul introduces at the beginning of Ephesians when he states in verse 3 that we have been blessed by every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We as church-age believers have this incredible reality, and yet few people uh, truly understand it. And so this is our passage as it's trans- Translated in the New King James Version, do and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And we began to look at this last time just in terms of that first uh, first clause: do not grieve actually there are four parts to this sentence and today uh, possibly we will get through the next three they are all very important the verse begins with the conjunction and which connects it to the previous verse this whole section that starts uh, back in verse 25 as we have studied we read these verses and the first verse in 25 begins with the therefore the 20 verse 26 begins just straight into the into the command to be angry and do not sin. Uh, Verse 27 nor give place to the devil. Verse 28 begins let him who steal uh, steal no longer. And my point is that their individual commands, they all relate to one general topic though and that is what is Uh, Stated in verse 25, as I have correctly translated it, therefore having already put off the lie. There's a lot going on in our world that fits into the complexities of Satan's lie. And we'll come back later and discuss more about that. But we have already put off the lie. It represents our position, all that we were before we were saved, and we were in our legal position in Adam. Romans 5 tells us that in Adam all die. We're all born spiritually dead due to Adam's original sin in the Garden of Eden. And so when we trust Christ as Savior, there's a transformation that takes place, and we have put off the lie legally and positionally, and we have put on the new man. And that language from Romans 6 and also in this chapter that putting off the old man, we have put off the old man, we put on the new man, the new man is our new identity in Christ. And one of the things that we have in Christ is being sealed by the Spirit. So we go all the way through those verses, there's no conjunction at the beginning till you get to verse 30 which tells us it's connected to the previous verse about not letting any corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. That corrupt word has to be understood in terms of the command in verse 25 to speak truth. That is the truth of God's word with your neighbor. And it is not talking about a lot of things that you may read into it. It's got to be understood contextually. And so when we do not uh conform to that command to talk within a biblical worldview and on the basis of the truth of scripture then that grieves the holy spirit it grieves the holy spirit because the holy spirit is the agent of divine revelation it is god the holy spirit who revealed scripture and uh guided and directed the writers of scripture the apostles and and the prophets and so uh He is the agent of revelation, and he's the one who uses God's Word in this church age to mature us. And so whenever we are not walking by means of the truth of God's Word, not living, thinking, talking according to God's truth, then what that does is it grieves the Holy Spirit. And so I talked about that last time. And it's the Greek word, lupeo, which indicates uh, something on the uh, range of sorrow or pain or mental or emotional distress. And this word is used of the Lord Jesus Christ when he's in the Garden of Eden. So being anguished in this sense, to grieve and to sorrow, is not sinful. It's what you do with it that may become sin. Our Lord suffered, He was sorrowful, He grieved in the Garden of Eden. But that's in His hypostatic union, as we studied on Thursday night. The union of undiminished deity with true humanity in the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to talking about uh, God in His essence... Uh, this does not apply in a literal sense. Now, people have str- struggle with that at times because they want an emotional God. But you only want an emotional God because the pagan worldview that's dominated Western culture since the early 1800s uh, has put more and more focus on emotion instead of reason. And, uh, uses emotion as a criteria for everything. And that is not what the Bible teaches. Scripture reminds us, God is speaking in Ephesians 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. And your, and nor are your ways my ways. Isn't that interesting? God says, my, he starts with his thoughts. He starts with himself. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. And they say, and your ways are not my ways. God is different. God is, a cre- is the creator. He goes on to say in verse 9 of Isaiah 55, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, God is the creator of the universe. At one instant... In time, there was absolutely nothing, not even the space-time continuum. There was nothing. And then God spoke, and there was the space-time continuum. And he began to create. And out of nothing came everything. And some people say, well, you, God made man out of the dust of the ground. Yeah, but first He made the dust of the ground. So, and He made the dust of the ground because He knew in a couple of days He was going to be making human beings out of it. So it's all connected, to, connected together. He is our Creator and His ways are not our ways and He is difficult for us to understand. And in Scripture, we understand him by analogy often. So we see in studying about God that he is the infinite personal creator God. He is infinite. He knows no boundaries, no limitations. There are no limitations to his knowledge, no limitations to his presence, no limitations to his power. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent, and he is uh, omniscient. He knows all things. And that's... We can't conceive of that. We can't conceive of infinity. So we can only understand certain things about God in a an analogous way. So he's beyond our finite, finite, finite creaturely ability to comprehend in many different ways. We can know true things about God, though. We know a lot of true things about God because he's revealed himself to us. But we can't know him comprehensively. And so there are things that are said about him that we scratch our heads. But God uses these things called analogies in Scripture, figures of speech, in order to help us understand. So we find that the Scriptures are filled with idioms and analogies. Now, this word idiom is a word that a lot of people don't really understand. They're just figures of speech, and we use them all the time. If you have ever gone to another country and tried to communicate through an interpreter, it's difficult. You begin to realize how idiomatic your English is. Now, Jim's had done this for many years in, in Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Belarus. I've done it when I've gone over there and done it in Africa. And you become very conscious of how idiomatic, sometimes it may be slang, sometimes it's just various phrases that you use and that I use that don't really mean what they literally are saying. So it doesn't matter how well you understand the words in the phrase, it 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 means something different. So an idiom is a common expression which are not understood literally. I'm going to give you some examples in a minute, but they do have a specific meaning. Now, why do I say that? I say that because we talk about the fact that we are to interpret the Bible literally, and you always have somebody who's playing the devil's advocate or is just not just wants to cause trouble, and he says, "Well, what about these passages? Don't you don't you believe there are figures of speech in the Bible?" Sure. But idioms have set meanings. They always mean the same thing. You, an idiom isn't something you can just assign any meaning to. It's part of the language. It may not be, uh, you do, may not be the sum of its literal parts, but it has a specific set meaning. And so we have to understand what the idiom means. We used to have a translator over in Ukraine named Margaret. And I used to try to trip her up. She was incredible. And I would every now and then slip some, some slang or some idiom into it. She never missed a beat. She would always pick up on it. She was, she was great. So we have, we have, uh, idioms like, don't burn your bridges. I don't know anyone here who owns a bridge. Okay, so we don't use it, we don't talk, it's not about bridges. And it's not about fires. It, it, it's, it's about, um, Making sure that you don't completely close off certain opportunities. So it refers to the idea that, uh, you wanna, you don't wanna make it impossible to go back to a previous situation. So if you leave a job, you don't wanna burn your bridges and go around and tell everybody what you really think of them because, you know, there may be a time when you're gonna come back and and maybe have a better opportunity so we refer to that as don't burn your bridges another one is on thin ice doesn't have anything to do with winter the thickness of frozen water but it has everything to do with simply describing a dangerous or precarious situation okay so you don't want to get out there on thin ice you don't want to get in make yourself Put yourself in a difficult situation you can't get out of. I like this one an early bird gets the worm. Doesn't have anything to do with birds or worms or eating. It conveys the idea that a person who gets up early in the day is going to have greater opportunities and to get there first, especially if you're talking about taking advantage of a sale. And you want to make sure that there are still products there that you want to buy that uh, so you're going to get up early because the early bird gets the worm, but like a lot of things this has a this has a flip side: the early worm gets eaten so these are just some difficult idioms. well, one form of idioms in the scripture, oh, another one I didn't put in there is um i don't think I did no, I didn't, is every cloud has a silver lining. It's not talking about literal clouds. It's not talking about lining silver or otherwise. It's talking about that even when things are really going wrong, that there may be many things positive that come out of it that you don't realize for a while. But you always have to remember, too, that every silver lining has a cloud. So we have something called anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms. These are long words. Some Americans say, oh, these are very long words. It's hard to talk. Well, go to Russia for a while. Go listen to Ukrainians speak. Uh, You know, they have kids that can say eight-syllable words by the time they're two simply because that's their name. Uh, (laughs) So this idea that Americans have that everything has to be shortened down to one or two syllables or people won't understand it, it, it's, and sometimes I'll use a word and it's only two syllables and somebody says, oh you're using such, such long words. No, they're not long words, they're just, they're just words you don't know. And they may be talking about something abstract. But an anthropomorphism, that word I have, part of the word that I have underlined there, morph, that has to do with form, morphology. And so in an anthropomorphism, there are human physical characteristics which God does not actually possess, that are applied to God in order to reveal to us or to help us understand his plans, his policies and his attributes in a way that that we can relate to it. But he doesn't actually possess those forms. So we have verses where like Deuteronomy 33:27, the eternal god is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. But God doesn't have arms. We have passages that talk about the eyes of the Lord going to and fro throughout the whole earth. But God doesn't have two eyes or many more eyes. But it's talking about his knowledge, his awareness, his, his omnipresence. Exodus thirty three twenty three says, Then I will take away my hand, God speaking. He says, I'll take away my hand and you shall see my back. And, but my face you shall not see. Well, God doesn't have a back face or hand. So these are just, they're, they're, we ascribe to God human attributes so that we can understand some things about Him. Now the other word is more debated. It's anthropopathisms, and the word therefore path is a word that relates to emotion. And so in anthropopathisms, human emotions are ascribed to God, which He doesn't actually possess in order to help us understand God's plans, policies, purposes, attributes, those those kinds of things. So we talk about different things, like the wrath of God, as we'll see in some passages, or the pity of God, Joel 2.18, Exodus 15.7, that uh, talks about God's wrath. Uh, That's an interesting one, because in the the Hebrew, it really is saying that God's nose burns. God doesn't have a nose, so that's an anthropomorphism. But it's an anthropomorphism that is used then for an anthropopathism so it, it, that's the fun stuff with language isaiah sixty three ten says that we grieved his holy spirit and ezekiel six nine says be, God is speaking he says because I was crushed by their adulterous heart do you think we could do anything that surprises God and crushes him emotionally no God's omniscient he's known for Forever and ever and ever, every sin you're going to commit, every failure, you're not going to surprise him, you're not going to shock him, and and uh, he's not eternally angry because you did this. These are just figures figures of speech. Uh, it talks about how Israel rebelled against him in the desert. And grieved him in the desert, so we have this this phraseology, just like we have in um, ephesians uh, four thirty that uh, grieving the spirit, and basically what it 's doing is it 's describing uh, with human references to grief and sadness and disappointment and sorrow, the impact our sin has. On the righteousness of God, because what the righteousness of God approves, then the justice of God is going to bless. But when the righteousness of God disapproves, then there's a problem. God's got to discipline us. And we are walking by the Spirit and we sin, and then that causes a breach in that intimate walk with God, the Holy Spirit. And so there has to be a recovery, and we recover by simply confessing our sins, admitting and acknowledging our sins, and we're instantly forgiven graciously of those sins and any other sins we've forgotten. So that's the first phrase, do not grieve. Then it says... Gives us the object of, of the grief. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is the only place in the New Testament where you have this lengthy phrase to describe the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. You have Spirit of God, you have Holy Spirit, many places in Scripture, but you don't have this full phrase, the Holy Spirit of God. So God wants to get your attention on the seriousness of violating God's uh, reveal plan for your life, his reveal plan for your life in terms of these behavior characteristics that are supposed to characterize us as a new creature in Christ. So we we learned something here, though, about the personality of God the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't as much of a problem for evangelicals, as it is, as it became in the 19th century and among liberal denominations. Because in um, these liberal denominations, they began to deny even the Trinity. And so they sought to make the Spirit of God simply just the exercise of God's uh, being, the exercise of his power or something along uh, along those those lines. And so they would talk about the, the power of God. That's all it talks about when it says the Spirit of God. That's just God using, using His power or sending forth an angel to do something. Uh, but the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit as having uh, personality, and this is an important thing to understand. So the Holy Spirit of God grieving the Holy Spirit, even though that's an anthropopathic, It indicates that the Spirit of God is a person that we can have a negative impact on, in a sense, with our sin. It affects our relationship. We're no longer walking by the Spirit. We can look at a couple of passages. For example, Romans 8.26 reads, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our uh, weaknesses. For we do not know uh, what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Now, this is important because you have the the word spirit, and this gets into a lot of confusing things that people are confused about today. And we're going to talk about grammar. We're not talking about sex. That's important to remember. The word "numa." see, English is not an inflected language. But if you're talking about Spanish or Latin or French or Russian or Hebrew or Greek, those are inflected languages. And so nouns have gender. My Greek professor in baby Greek used to say that words have gender, people have sex, don't forget it. That seems very contemporary today. So the spirit, the word pneuma, that's the word on the left. The word pneuma means wind. It means breath, spirit, air, or capital spirit for the Holy Spirit. It is, you'll see I have it underlined, it is a neuter noun. Now let's think about German for a minute. I know you all know German. So um, we've got two nouns in German that relate to young women. One word is Freulein, the other word is Mädchen. They both refer to a young, unmarried girl, maybe a teenage girl or a young woman in her 20s that's not married. Both of those nouns are neuter. How many of you all know young women in their adolescent years and 20s that are neuter? See... The grammatical category has nothing to do with their physical biological sex. It's just a grammatical category. So you would, but you would have people who would say, see, the Holy Spirit's mentioned not as, with a masculine noun or a feminine noun, so it's neuter, so he's not a person, he's just a force. But that just, you know, people really mess up grammar. And then it says himself, and that's the other word on the screen, autos, which is a reflexive use. So it's talking about himself or herself or itself. And notice, it's neuter. Okay, so people would come along and say, see, this shows that the Holy Spirit is not a person. Oh, okay, well, wait a minute. What about over in John 14 when Jesus is talking in verse 26, and he says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit... Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Now see, you have the same noun for Holy Spirit here, Numa. that's a neuter noun, but it's grammatically incorrect but theologically important that Jesus doesn't use a neuter pronoun to refer to the neuter noun. He uses this word, a kainos, and it's a masculine form. It could be neuter or it could be feminine, but Jesus uses the masculine form because he's pointing out, you know, the Holy Spirit he, he, in His omniscience when He mostly knew everything that was going to happen. Right? Not mostly everything. So he 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 violates the strict grammar. Because he's making a point that, yeah, the Holy Spirit's a he. The Holy Spirit is a person. There's not a sexual identity in the Godhead. But the Holy Spirit is a a person. So we see other things about the Holy Spirit, that he has knowledge, and the Holy Spirit is omniscient. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, we read, But God has revealed them to us. Now, the them is a pronoun, but we don't see what it's describing here. So we have to go back to verse 9. Verse 9 says, but as it is written, and so as Paul sometimes does, he sort of takes parts from different uh, verses in Isaiah and puts them together in sort of a divinely inspired paraphrase from Isaiah sixty four four and 52.15 and maybe a couple of other places. And he says, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things. That's the important phrase. The things. What things? The things which God has prepared for those who love him. So I has not seen is talking about the fact that we base a lot of truth on What we see, I've just got to see it to believe it, right? That's what Eve was uh, saying when she looked at, talked to, was talking to the serpent. The serpent said, if you eat that fruit, you won't certainly die. And so she's looking at it that it looks good to eat. So she's relying upon her, what she sees, that that's telling her the whole story nor ear heard see that's the same thing it's also empiricism that what we listen so we're observing things that's part of the scientific methodology is that you observe things and some people say that all of our knowledge of truth comes from what we see or taste or touch it has to be empirically demonstrated then the second line next line is um, nor have entered into the heart of man well that's his thinking Eighty-three percent, I think, of the uses of heart in Scripture refer to the intellectual activity of the soul. And so that would be rationalism. So what this is saying is we can have some knowledge but not absolute knowledge on the basis of empiricism because there are things that I has not seen nor you heard. And there are also they haven't entered into the heart of man, so it hasn't come through reason or logic. These things God has given. The things which God has prepared for those who love Him. It's talking about the revelation of God in Scripture. This is what God has given us. And if you think about it in the Garden of Eden for a simple illustration, God gave Adam and Eve certain information. He said, you can eat from any tree in the garden. And if He had stopped right there... They would have been left on their own in terms of empiricism, and they would they would have to try to figure it out by trial and error that there was one tree that would have negative consequences. So you can learn a lot of things. uh, They could have learned a lot of things in the Garden of Eden by just keeping a notebook and writing down the characteristics of all the trees and all the different fruits and how they tasted and all kinds of things. But there's one piece of information that correlated everything correctly. And that was the information that there was one tree that if you eat from that, you're going to die instantly. There'll be spiritual death. They couldn't know that by looking at it. They couldn't know that through their innate reason. So it is God's revelation that's important because it gives us the facts we need to correctly understand and order all of the things that we learn or think we know through either empiricism or rationalism. So that's what this passage is talking about, the things that God has prepared, the divine revelation. So when verse, verse um, uh, 10 says, but God has revealed them to us, he's talking about the things that God has prepared for us. God has revealed those things to us through his Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is the divine agent for divine revelation and the revelation of Scripture. It goes on to say, "...for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God." So the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God, and the mind of God is omniscient. So the Holy Spirit has to be omniscient in order to know the mind of God. So we know that the Holy Spirit has intellect and he can think. That indicates that he is a a person. Romans 8.27 says, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. That's the Holy Spirit. Again, it refers to his omniscient Omniscience, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. God the Holy Spirit is the one who's interceding for us. But is he the only one? No. Jesus is making intercession for us. That's one of the reasons we don't pray to Jesus and we don't pray to the Holy Spirit. Jesus is our high priest. You don't pray to the high priest. You pray to God. Jesus is our high priest who represents us to God. The Holy Spirit is also interceding for us. So we're to pray to the Father. We go on and we see that... Even though the phrase "to grieve the Holy Spirit is an idiom, it has significance only if the Holy Spirit is a person in first corinthians twelve one twelve eleven we read but one and the same spirit works all these things that 's the distribution of spiritual gifts, distributing to each one individually as he wills. See the Holy Spirit has volition, the Holy Spirit distributes as he wills, so he is a person he has intellect and he has as volition. So a second point is that the Holy Spirit operates as a person, guiding and directing the Holy Spirit. I mean excuse me, guiding and directing the disciples. So in John 16:13 Jesus says, "However, when he the Spirit of truth comes, he, w- he will guide you into all truth. That is what the Spirit does as a person. He guides us into all truth, the truth that He has revealed. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. Third, we see that the Holy Spirit also performs miracles. In Acts 8.39, when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. This is after he's baptized the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. And the Spirit of the Lord then takes him away and takes him back up uh, to Samaria. So the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch could saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And then the Spirit intercedes for us, as I just mentioned. He makes intercession for us. He he, he, Scripture says very clearly, we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Very clear. So God the Holy Spirit is our prayer interpreter. He sort of reshapes, repackages, and kind of fixes up our prayers where we don't quite know what to pray for. And that's his role as our intercessor. The Holy Spirit can also be lied to, resisted, and blasphemed. In Acts 5.3, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, and they were the first ones to be slain in the Spirit. You gotta be aware of contemporary situations. Okay. Acts 751, you always resist the Holy Spirit, and in Matthew 1231, the Pharisees committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So you can't, uh, you can't lie to a non-person, you can't resist a non-person, and you can't blaspheme a non-person. So the Holy Spirit is a person. And then six, in this passage, he's described with the fullest expression of titles, the Holy Spirit of God. He is equal. It's interesting that in the early church, when they were struggling to figure out the person of Christ, I talked about this on Thursday night, one of the early heresies was put forth by a man named Arius, and his teaching was that God was one, a Unitarian idea, and he said... Um, he said that there was a time when Christ was not. So Jesus is the first creature. And, a cre- and the critique was, well, a creature can't die for other creatures' sins, so that's got to be a heresy. But he also taught that the Holy Spirit was just a force. And so that idea has been running in and out of church history all along. And so that brings us to the next phrase that uh, in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And we'll have to come back next Sunday in order to talk about the sealing by God, the Holy Spirit. And so we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us and God, the Holy Spirit will fill us. As we walk by the Holy Spirit, and as we'll see as we get into uh, chapter 5, the Holy Spirit fills us with His Word. So it's important for us to be in that relationship with the Holy Spirit. He's a person, and we have that relationship on the basis of the Word of God by walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. And we maintain that by, as we'll see when we get into chapter 5, by walking in truth and walking as children of light. And that is how we maintain that relationship with God the Holy Spirit. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we are so thankful for the opportunity we've had today to worship at the Lord's table, to be reminded of who our Lord Jesus Christ is. And what he did for us, that we have such a great salvation, such a multifaceted salvation uh, that is ours forever and ever because it was uh, taken care of completely by Christ on the cross. And then, as we'll see next week, we're sealed by the spirit. We have a mark of ownership on us so that uh, we are yours and that can never be lost and that we are uh, protected uh, by that seal forever and ever father we pray that if there's anyone here today that has never trusted christ as savior uh, maybe they've been around churches maybe they've heard a lot but they've never just said father i i, I trust christ as my savior now you don't have to offer a prayer uh, we're not saved by saying a sinner's prayer we're saved by belief simple belief and because god's omniscient. If we hear the gospel that Christ died for our sins and we say, yes, that's right, I believe that, that's true, Christ died for my sins, God the Father knows that. You don't have to pray a prayer, you don't have to tell him, you don't have to remind him 15 times, even though many of us do that. Once we make that sentence formed in our thinking, yes, that's true, Christ died for me, we're saved eternally. We're a new creature in Christ and we have, God has a new uh, new roles for us, new privileges for us, new new expectations for us. We're to walk by the Spirit. So, Father, we pray that this would be clear to those who've heard it, and we would all be challenged that we need to be more consistent in our day-to-day walk with the Holy Spirit. And We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.